0: My name is Thomas, if we've never met, and it's my joy to be able to continue our series this morning entitled, This We Believe. We're looking at the theological truths about what we would all believe to be true if you would call Calvary home. What is our statement of faith on many issues of what do we believe about the Bible to be the word of God? What do we believe about God as he has revealed himself to be Father, Son, and Spirit? What do we believe about humanity as God has made humanity in his image, on purpose, with a purpose. And we spent the last seven weeks looking at those themes. And, and now we're gonna take a shift to look at another theme for the next few weeks, which is the theme of the church. What do we believe to be true about the church? Now, just the word church probably conjures up a whole bunch of emotions and ideas and images and probably experiences with the church. Perhaps those are positive, maybe overwhelmingly they're negative, in which the church has disappointed you, harmed you, insulted you. And so we wanna look at this morning as a simple framework of what do we believe the church to be, fundamentally, And then over the next few weeks, we're gonna unpack the mechanics of the church. Like, what does it mean for the church to be gathered in community? What does it look like for the church to serve together? What does it look like for the church to be on mission? But today is simply a framework of what is the church? Now, that might seem like a total diversion from what we've been talking about in individual identity as human beings. As though we are independent from the church, but actually our identity, Is built on our relationship to one another in fact we only know who we are as we relate to one another let me explain it this way if I were to say I as an individual am married what would you assume I have a spouse and she would say she's married and then we would say we're married And so there's really no such thing as an independent, self-defined person. For we are all defined in our identities in relationship to one another. I'm married. She's married. We're married. Even if you're single in this room, you would say, I'm single. And that's defined in relationship to everyone else in this room. That you are not married to anyone else in this room. And our identity is based on the groups that we often belong to. And man, humanity humanity loves to assemble itself in defined, distinct groups. And so you might be an engineer. You might be a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, a first responder. You might be mother, father, brother, sister. We define groups of people in their socioeconomic class, upper class, middle class, lower class, in poverty. We love to divide and assemble people in political views, left, right, center. We like to define people based on nationalities, American, Canadian, Mexican. We love to define people by their race, by their gender. And so humanity is constantly assembling itself in defined groups that are distinct from one another, and from those groups, drawing out personal, individual identities. So here's the question. Is the church just another group? Is the church just another way in which the world has assembled, defined itself distinctly? I would say no. And the reason I would say no is because what Jesus said he was going to do from all the groups of humanity in assembling his church. So if you've got a Bible, let's open up to Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is a time in which Jesus is traveling from Caesarea Philippi, or heading over to Caesarea Philippi, and he's walking with his disciples. And there's a lot of activity around Jesus these days. Because Jesus has been teaching several things. Because Jesus has been doing many miracles. People are starting to form opinions about who this Jesus is. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks this question. A question you probably have never asked anyone. What are people saying about me? And the reason you don't ask that is because oftentimes the report that gets back is it's not good. It's not good. But Jesus asks, what are people saying about me? Who do people say that I am, They've, they've witnessed my teaching and they've witnessed my miracles and they've witnessed my compassion, they've witnessed my activity. What are people saying about me? And overall, the opinions of people is very positive. People say that you're a prophet, perhaps John the Baptist, come alive, Elijah, Jeremiah, or something else that we hold in high regard. So people's opinions, even in that day of Jesus, was very favorable. It's similar today. Very few people like, are anti-Jesus. People have a high view of Jesus. Even if you were talking to your Muslim neighbors or friends, when I talk to my Muslim friends, they have a high view of Jesus. They hold him in high regard as a, a prophet of their faith. When I talk to my friends that are Buddhists or Hindus, they talk about how family members really love Jesus as one of the many options or pantheons, and, or sorry, one of the gods in their pantheon, Even when I talk to many of my Jewish friends, they have a a high view of, of Jesus as a notable Jewish figure in which history has never forgotten. And so there is always, I think, a high view of Jesus, but Jesus is not pleased with that alone. He wants an accurate view of who Jesus is. And so he turns to his disciples, and he asks the disciples, kind of that inner circle who's witnessed and watched him all the time, and who do you say? So this becomes individual. Who do you say, each of you, who would you say that I am? And Peter's the first one to respond, as Peter often is. He's like this eager middle school boy. It's like sometimes he gets his foot in his mouth, sometimes he's doing well. It's great. This is one of those times that he does well. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Christ is the the Greek translation of the word Messiah, anointed one. The The Old Testament scriptures promised that God was going to bring his anointed one, his Messiah, his Christ, to come. And he's going to be the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the prince of peace, the salvation of the world the Son of God, the one who will reconcile all things to himself. And so when Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, what Peter is acknowledging is that Jesus is the promised one, the one who is to come. He's the fulfillment of all of these prophetic texts. You are the Christ, the anointed, the Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. You are the Lord of our life. You are the Son of God. Now, that is very different than you're a good prophet. You are God Himself come to rescue us. And Jesus responds Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I mean, there's some reality in which the Father has to open eyes and ears for us to recognize who Jesus is. In some way, that it's helpful to know that it's not Peter's cleverness or his exposure to Jesus necessarily that helps him get it, that prohibits you from getting it. It's that the Father has opened his eyes and his ears to recognize who Jesus is as the Christ and the Son of God. Then he says, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter. So now, now what we're going to see is that, God, that Peter learns his identity after he belongs to Jesus. You see, Peter's now gonna unpack who he truly is in relationship to who Jesus is. In belonging to Jesus, Peter will get a true identity. You are Peter, and on this rock, not, not Peter, but on this rock, there's another foundational rock, this rock, which is Peter's confession. That Peter just confessed that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And then Jesus says, based on that rock, that's the foundational piece of what I'm about to do to build my church. On this rock, your confession, everyone who recognizes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. On that rock, I will build my church. And he says, my church, not even the gates of hell, shall prevail against it. The word is Hades. Hades is the place of death. Not even death itself will be able to stop what I'm doing here. Now, oftentimes when we think of gates of hell, we think of there's this little church, poor American little church. People are leaving the church. It's so vulnerable. It might not exist anymore. It's like, no, no, that's not the church. You have such a small view of the church. What the church is, is the work of Jesus Christ. And gates, what are gates for? Some of you guys maybe have gates around your house. Gates are to keep people out or to keep people in. You have gates at prisons, too. So I got to keep all this, this carnage in here. Or you can keep this gate up so you keep all that carnage out from invading my life. And there's gates of death, Hades, hell. And Jesus says, what I'm doing is going to advance on those gates. See, the the church is advancing. The work of Christ is advancing. And the, the way in which death is trying to be contained, it won't even work. The power of Jesus Christ will run over gates trying to keep death in. And trying to keep people in death in. And so here is Christ saying, I'm about to make a movement. I'm starting something that's based on this rock, this foundation, which is your confession, Peter. And not even my death is going to stop it. And Peter, your death's not going to stop it. And none of the disciples' deaths are going to stop it. In fact, death itself cannot stop this because it's life. And I'm bringing life everywhere. And we're crushing gates. And we're raiding death. We're going to raid Hades. And we're going to bring out captives into life. Now look to the person to your left. And look to the person on your right. And do you know what you see? The promise of God fulfilled. Wow! Wow! We're here in Erie, Colorado, worshiping Jesus Christ. There is a church on every continent on the planet worshiping Jesus Christ today. How does a carpenter 2,000 years ago say, I'm starting something, that not even death will stop? It will simply expand and expand and expand, and we're in Erie, Colorado, 2,000 years later saying, I think he was right. <laughs> he was right. He promised something, and we're the fulfillment of that. We're part of the evidence that Jesus tells the truth. There are many scholars, both secular and of faith, that look at the Christian movement as the most significant movement that's ever happened on planet Earth. That has influenced education, philosophy, arts, music, justice, equality amongst men and women, children, those who with, with abilities and inabilities and disabilities, and they just wonder, how did this happen? It's because Jesus said it would happen. It's because Jesus is telling the truth that he was gonna start something that could not be stopped. And you and I today are evidence of the words of Jesus. Tom Wright, who's an Anglican theologian, looking at this text, just simply says, he, that's Jesus, is going to build a community consisting of all those who give allegiance to him as God's anointed king. And this movement, this community starts then and there at Caesarea Philippi with Peter's declaration. Now, I think Wright is essentially correct when he calls it a community. Jesus is is forming a community of people. The word that is translated church here that Jesus uses is the word ekklesia in Greek. And ekklesia simply means assembly. It's not unique to the Christian faith. In fact, if you read your New Testament, there's many uses of the word ecclesia. In fact, Paul and other New Testament writers use the ecclesia to talk about the church, but they also talk about other assemblies as ecclesia. And so this was a word that was used in Greek to talk about simply the assembling of people. If you happen to chase this down and go to Acts chapter 19, you'll see one example of this. In Acts chapter 19, there are the disciples teaching about the resurrection of Christ, and there's a crowd of people who are hearing it, and, and that turns into kind of a mob mentality of, of what they want to do to, to quiet down these, these apostles. And it says there's, there's an assembly, there's an ecclesia of people in the public square. Now, that's not the church. That's just a group of people. And then, then there's the leaders of the city that come and try to quiet them down and say, hey, we have to disperse. The ecclesia, the assembly, otherwise Rome's going to come in here and we're going to be charged with rioting and there's going to be problems. And so the New Testament authors, even Jesus himself, is just simply taking a word that is familiar in the vernacular of assembling people. That's what humans do. We assemble. And so what, what, what's not in the mind of Jesus is we should build some buildings and get some organizational structure to some things. And then we could start doing some damage here. No, what he sees is a vision of, from all the different ways in which people have assembled, I'm going to call out to build my ecclesia. I'm going to assemble a new people. And what we share in common is not our jobs, our socioeconomic class, our experiences, our background, our nationality, our race, even our preferences, what will assemble this group of people, which will bring them together, will be their confession of recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This will be the most diverse collection of people on planet Earth. And we look around and we see the most diverse group of people on planet Earth, with one thing in common, It's not their job. It's not their background. Not their nationality. It's not their gender. It is this confession. That Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. He is the son of God. And that's what unites us as the family of God. That's what gives us our identity as the ecclesia. And this family of God that we belong to, man, death can't even stop it. God is doing a work in his family that's bringing life into all these prisons. Now, we as human beings don't do well playing with other groups, do we? Everybody on paper says, I want diversity. Until you get three people in a room and we all have different opinions about something. And so it's actually part of our witness to the world that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and did what he said he did when we get along. Jesus says, I I pray for those who will come to faith after me that they would have a unity amongst them that the world would know that you father sent me. It's part of our witness to the world that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God. How are we doing as Christians? Not super great. Think of all the ways in which Christians love to divide themselves. Attack one another. Even harm one another. Like when the world looks here, we want them to see, not conformity, but diversity that's unified on one thing. That Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what we're about. That's why here at Calvary, this is our mission statement. There's times when you get bored during the sermon and your eyes start wandering. Oh, there's a mission statement. And this is what we're after, is building a Christ-centered community here. Communities in Boulder, Thornton, Erie, and beyond. Christ-centered community of people fully devoted to loving God, and loving others. What is the centerpiece of our community? Is it me? Oh no, it can't be me. There are plenty of churches that love to prop up pastors, put their name on buildings, get a bookstore, get the books in there, make websites. Heaven forbid we ever do that. Now what's the centerpiece of Calvary Bible Church? Is Christ. What is the centerpiece of the true church is Christ. And so when you see the New Testament authors talking about the church, we start seeing them talk about not only the local, but the global expression of the church, the church in Ephesus, and then also the church in Asia Minor. So the true church is the assembly of all the people who have the same profession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, which means this. Church is not something you attend. It is someone to whom you belong. Do you get that? Church is not something you attend. It is someone to whom you belong. And you belong to him, and I belong to him, and we have a shared identity. We are Christian. We are the church. And then he gives the church, right? The ecclesia, this mission. So after his resurrection, he gathers them. This is Matthew chapter 28. Final words in the gospel of Matthew, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So where does Jesus have the authority to send us? Everywhere. Go therefore, under his authority, not under yours, under his authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? So go into all the people groups. All the ways in which humanity tries to assemble itself and call out from them people who would profess Jesus as Christ. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we're called to make disciples. So you kind of get bored and you look over here and you find a mission statement. And then you're still kind of bored and your eyes wander over here. And, oh man, there's like tactics here of how to accomplish that. And the first one right there is something I didn't make up. It's that Jesus gave us. We we're passionate about making disciples. And what's a disciple? Disciple, the, the word is actually matetheo, which simply means learner. A disciple is a learner, a pupil, a follower of Jesus. Now, it's funny because what is one of the things that Christians are often accused of is, is being closed-minded. And what's the very definition of our word disciple? is a learner. Like, we come to engage our minds, to think about things, to know what we believe, for what we believe really matters. And so a disciple is a learner and a practitioner. Go and teach them all, to obey all that I have. Taught you, So it's not just to know the things that Jesus said. Like this isn't just one big Bible study says, okay, everybody knows their Bible more. Great. See you next week. No, to teach someone not to know something only, but to practice something. And so what is the church? The church is a body of believers who have a shared confession of who Jesus Christ is, who are disciples, learners to know and practice the ways of Jesus. So if you were new this morning, you're like, what happens at that building over there? It's just the assembly of people from all different walks of life that have a shared confession of who Jesus Christ is and a shared devotion to know and practice the ways of Jesus. That's what we're doing here: is teach me the ways of Jesus and then show me how to practice them. Because I come out of the world that has a totally different vision for my life, a totally different vision of who I am and my identity and what it means to be human and how to act and behave. And we come into this place and we say, let me teach you about Jesus who's filled with mercy and compassion and forgiveness. And he calls us to be people of mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. And not only do I want you to know that, I want you to go practice that in your families and in your marriages and in your community. I welcome to the way of Jesus. And and Jesus is very generous. God is a generous God. He's a giving God. He He loves you so much that he gave us his only son. And so because of the generosity of God, let us not only learn about that, but then let us go practice what it means to be generous. See, God's a God of justice. He really cares about justice and caring for the widow and the orphan and the vulnerable And so what are we doing here? We're learning not only about the character of God, but then how do we go and practice justice? How do we go care for the widow? How do we care for the orphan and those who are vulnerable? Disciples are learners and practitioners. We want to know the ways of Jesus so that we go practice the ways of Jesus. So what is happening this morning? Is that the assembly of all those people who said, Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, have gathered together to learn and practice the ways of Jesus? And he gives this community of, of church kind of two communal practices. One is baptism, you see it right here in Matthew 28, is baptize them, like have an actual visible practice in which when someone comes into faith, they can see, there's, there's going to be a teaching to it. That when you watch someone get baptized, you're reminded of the story of the narrative to which we belong. Here's a person who says, I'm a sinner. And then they're baptized like underwater. So there's a washing for sure, but there's a a union underwater of death. That's like the grave. And they're united to Christ's death. The death that Christ died, he died for me. And so I'm joined in his death. Remember? Doesn't hold me. And so I'm raised, like, I'm out of the grave to new life. And you can just see I'm covered in it. I'm saturated in it. Every part of me is touched by it. And so baptism becomes a teachable action for the church to remember the story that they belong to. The next institute that he gives the church is is communion, the Lord's table. We'll celebrate that next weekend where we gather to remember what Christ has done for us. Here at the table, we remember that Jesus gathered his disciples around at a Passover meal and says, this story used to tell you the story of God's redeeming work of drawing you out of slavery of Egypt. And now I'm taking these elements and, and I'm interpreting them. I'm fulfilling them. Now, this is about me. This story was actually about me that I'm going to redeem you and bring you out of the slavery of death and sin into marvelous light. And so gather as a community to remember the work of Christ, to remember what has done, because we are learners and practitioners of this faith. And when we see that the early church starts doing that, the early church starts behaving this way that there are witnesses of these things, both in word and deed. So Acts chapter one, verse eight, before Christ ascends, he gathers his disciples together and he simply tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this, this job this work that we're doing is not based on our own strength. We're an empowered community by the Holy Spirit. And we spent a whole weekend on the Holy Spirit. Remember how we simply define the Holy Spirit? the personal presence of the all-powerful God. So the personal presence of the all-powerful God is going to be with this community, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Erie, Colorado. And it's like he was right. It's like this thing's trustworthy and true. It's amazing. And that's exactly what they begin to go do. And so Peter... The same one who made that profession gives the very first sermon to start off the church. The Holy Spirit empowers him at Pentecost. And all those people are wondering what's going on. And he gets up and he gives this sermon, chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, remember the the one who made this profession? Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And he begins to unpack who Jesus is. And they're cut to the heart, it says. And these Jewish men and women make the same profession. That Jesus wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a good teacher. He was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. And it says 3,000 members were added to the church that day. Now, just think about the logistics of adding 3,000 people here. Like, it's hard hard enough to find a parking spot. Like, how do you get 3,000 people here? Well, they start organizing themselves in local assemblies. So you start seeing this is Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Because they're learners, teach me the ways of Jesus and to fellowship. That's a good Christian word that you never use at work. They go back on Monday, what'd you do? I had a great fellowship this weekend. They're like, what'd you do? I hung out with my friends. I had great community. We did, we, we did life together. I'm in a life group. Fellowship. To the breaking of bread, not only a meal, but around the communion table. And to the, it says the prayers. Do you see that? The prayers. It's, they continue to be Jewish. Remember, they believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of their faith. And so they continue to have their morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. They continue to pray the prayers that Jesus taught them. And they continue to gather at the temple and synagogues. It goes on, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They're just practicing the ways of Jesus. And day by day adding, or sorry, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So they go to the temple and then the temple even today is the biggest open area in Jerusalem, like multiple football fields. And they gather as a large community there and devote themselves to the apostles teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And then what do they do? They go gather in smaller assemblies in their homes. What do we do here at Calvary? The same thing is we gather in a large gathering but this isn't the church, like the building's not the church. You're the church, I'm the church, we're the church. And so we have come to learn and practice the ways of Jesus and then we leave here, what do we do? We go gather in homes. We gather in women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies in, as students, high school and middle school. We gather in mentoring relationships. This is what happened yesterday, Saturday, with 100 men in the lobby to gather and talk about the purity of being a man. Why? Because the church is the gathered community of God to learn and practice the ways of Jesus. That's what they did. And the the biggest description of what this community looks like is a body. That's what the New Testament authors often point to. Here's Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. It says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized, immersed, brought into union, into one body. Jews and Greeks, like there's no division now. Like they're together. That doesn't mean that they've lost their identity, that they have been brought to the identity of Christ. Slaves are free. But those that didn't associate with each other, that dominated one another, now have equality in the family of God, and we are all made to drink of one spirit, like the spirit of God unites us. And so, then God gives to the church certain people, like teachers, for the building up of the body. So, church is not something you attend, it's someone to whom you belong. And if you belong to Jesus, that means you also belong to me and you and others. We're interconnected. Like our bodies and our gifts are shared. This is what this is what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. Another church, he writes to them, and he says he gave, that's Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So what's, what's my role in here? Is to build up the saints. You're saints, I'm a saint. We build up the body of Christ. We want to equip you as hands. I'm not a hand, maybe, for the work of the ministry. We want to build up the feet and equip the feet for the work of the ministry, and the eyes, and the ears. You have a unique function in the body of Christ, which is why you can't simply attend church. You have to belong to the church. You have to exercise your gifts how God's wired you, passioned you. And so we are simply building up the body. So of all the problems, do you just come to pastoral staff? No, we come to the body. We share this until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Like we're growing up in this as disciples. to mature manhood or womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children, like who just believe anything, no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. When we gather here, we, we open up the truth and we love one another. Now, we've all been part of churches that emphasize one or the other. There are many churches, you probably know these churches, that are uncomfortable with the process of being formed into the likeness of Jesus. And so at those churches, they pretend to be better than they actually are. This is why the world accuses Christians of being hypocrites. And this is where many generational Christians have fallen apart, is because moms and dads came to church and pretended to be someone they're not. And maybe they served like a deacon or an elder, or they're a ministry leader, and they had their smile on on Sunday morning, and they had all the right answers. And man, Monday morning, they're so angry. She was so crass. They just belittled you, and it's like I can't reconcile this. We go to church and we all pretend to be something that we're not. We're not, we're not comfortable being in process of being formed into the likeness of Jesus. And there are other churches that are like, hey, we recognize everyone's broken. And so just come with your brokenness and we're cool with that. And they never tell you the ways of Jesus that would offend you, that would bother you, that would call you to something else. And so, as the body of Christ is both in truth, this is the ways of Jesus, and in love, let me extend grace to you as we almost like fumble our discipleship forward. That's the bo- that's a picture of the body of Christ in both truth and love. We are grow we, sorry. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is the head of this church. No one else from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is what working properly together makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if there's one frame that you just have to know is that the church is not a building. It's not a place you go to. It is a someone to whom you belong. And we belong to him both as individuals who have made a profession, but we belong to him as a community, for we are knit together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to bring us from all places in this world, to assemble us as the community of believers. And so, Father, I just pray for every man and woman in this room that they would know their true identity as they belong to Christ. And, Father, I pray that you would remind them that you have called them to belong somewhere, not attend somewhere. And I pray that every man and woman in this room would would ask you how it is for them to exercise faith here at Calvary to exercise their gifts here at Calvary, to be connected within the body of believers to which Christ is the head. And so, Father, we just come before you as disciples, some very, very young, some old, some immature and some very mature, to simply learn and practice the ways of Jesus together as we are being formed into his image. It's in his name we pray a